political class buys everything. Dude, I did a deep dive research on all this mysterious deaths around the Clintons. About a dozen that are just fucking hard to shake. Klaus Schwab famously said that you will own nothing and be happy. Look at you. You start a show with absolutely nothing and you have thousands and thousands of listeners. And you have force multipliers to send your content out. I was actually talking to Chase Geyser. He hadn't seen this. It just came out. I said, oh, did you see this? That, you know, all these documents that... Oh, maybe I shouldn't even say what he said. <laughs> I shouldn't have said his name. Uh, I won't tell you what he said. I actually did a Getter uh, stream last night uh, with uh, was a Chase Geyser fantastic interview. It's One American Podcast live with... Harrison Smith. Hopefully, Jack Maxey will join us later. Haven't heard from him today. Yesterday, he confirmed that he would come on the show, so hopefully, he'll chime in. I let him know that he could come in at any time yesterday, so not necessarily expecting him here at the beginning of the episode, but hopefully, he can come in and talk a little bit about Hunter Biden's laptop later. Harrison, it's an honor to have you on for the second time, man. I feel bad because you've had me on your show so many times, and, and, and I've only had you on once, and I was like, oh, man, I need to reciprocate. You know, I was taking it pretty personally, so uh, yeah, I'm very glad. No, it's uh, it's great, great to be on here. Uh, little little boys' night online today. It's uh, it's it's an honor to be asked. Thanks for having me on. And by the way, I was just watching your last interview with Jack Maxey. Incredibly interesting, by the way. It won't be as interesting as this video, so everybody watching should stay and watch this video. But afterwards, go check out Chase's old uh, interview with Jack Maxey. Really awesome stuff. You know, I've had several videos taken down from YouTube, uh, namely the Roger Stone episode is the one that comes to mind, and I don't know why they took that one down. And I can't believe that they haven't taken down the Jack Maxey episode because he says some stuff in that episode that is explicitly against YouTube's terms. And I'm not even talking about the controversial terms around COVID or elections. Like He says stuff that's probably actually against... Yeah like the law i was gonna say yeah hey while it's still up you know go go check it out yeah it, it's good he's he is um one of those sort of quiet american heroes one of my favorite movies it's cliche but i love uh dark knight batman and of course it jack maxey is the embodiment of the phrase from that movie i am what gotham needs me to be you right. know he's just quietly in the background he doesn't seek the fame doesn't seek the money and he just does what America needs. He is what America needs him to be. And that's why I really admire him. And I'm okay with him flaking out on, on podcasts if he wants to, because he's done so much for this damn country. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's very clearly the real deal, man. There's a certain spirit, especially with uh, veterans, man. Like, you know, I'm, I'm committed to the fight. But, like, I think something happens when you're, like, actually on the front line that, like, everything just gets ratcheted up a couple notches in seriousness, in, like, intensity and you can just it's in everything they say it's totally fascinating i think so too and when i think about it now that you mention it it seems to me that if you've had combat experience and you're a thoughtful person then you realize that there are actual life and death circumstances that are the result of politics so you know we live these cushy lifestyles it's easy to we could choose to ignore politics and we wouldn't really notice that much except for maybe changes in gas prices or taxes here and there term to term. But when you're in a, a war, I imagine, and I can only imagine that you're like, oh, it actually politics does matter because, you know, my buddy just got shot 
or yes. I just got shot or I had to shoot somebody. Seriously. Right. I mean, that that's like, that's where that, that is the tip of the spear. Of course, Alex Jones is the tip of the spear, but that is in, the real the tip of the spear. War, yeah. That's right, the actual right. tip of the spear in the actual war. That's uh, the wars that are taking place. Yeah. No. Yeah. Mad, mad respect for, for him. And uh, it was super fascinating. And again, it's just like, I guess it is just when you put your life on the line for something, you just, you just like don't mince words. It's not like, which I thought it was hilarious. Cause I'm like you where I see the humor and everything. So there are so many times in that interview where you like are just laughing at just the absurdity of it all. You yeah. know, it's just like, yeah. you can't help, but just go, really that happened. Like, that's crazy. Like, that's funny. Right. And you'd just be like, no, it's not it's like, <laughs> well, it kind of is. I mean, it is kind of funny if you, if, you know, yeah. you I can make a video here. that's two hours long of just Hunter Biden smoking crack. And I'm laughing and he's like, it's not funny. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of funny though. It is kind of. Funny. I mean, you gotta have the gallows humor, man. You gotta, you right. gotta be able to laugh at this because, or else I would just go insane, man. Oh yeah, you know it's funny that you mentioned it because I uh, I was on Twitter today and I saw this um, this article. <laughs> and this is my sense of this is like humor is like my cope, my coping mechanism. So this article was um, something about Jehovah's Witnesses in Hamburg, Germany, that got shot down in the church. Yeah, it says that it's the Associated Press shots were fired inside a building used by Jehovah's Witnesses in the German city of Hamburg on Thursday evening. And my comment was, how many witnesses? <laughs> of course, I feel bad for the Jehovah's Witnesses that got shot, but how could you not say that? <laughs> <laughs> but I refuse to pass up a, very, a perfectly decent pun when I see one. <laughs> Absolutely. So usually I do this at the end of the show and that's probably a mistake. So I want to do it right now. Can you tell people who you are and what you do and where you do it? Certainly I can. My name is Harrison Smith. I am a host for InfoWars. I host the morning show. It's called American Journal. We go live every weekday morning from 8 to 11 a.m. Central Standard Time at InfoWars.com and Band.video. We also restream on Rumble and anywhere else that our amazing audience uh, post our streams illegally, uh, but legally because we allow them to do it. So yeah, you can tune in every weekday, call in if you'd like. And of course you can follow me on Twitter at Harrison H Smith. Harrison H Smith is my Twitter account. Offlimits.news is the website and uh, where you can find all the centralized stuff. And I, I don't know, I need to get, I need to get more into the social media stuff because, you know, Infowars is like a, it's a blessing and a curse because it's a blessing because obviously I have like a massive audience that I did not earn. <laughs> I did not build myself. So, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to go on and just like speak my mind and have band video where all of our videos get uploaded. But at the same time, it, it's, I feel like my, my social media uh, muscles atrophy because I don't, I don't have to do any of that like yourself or so many other content creators, like y'all are constantly having to promote yourselves mm -hmm. or like, you know, get, interactions on social media for me it's just like get it up on bandai video and then you know the, the the crew and the and the fans take it over from there so anyway that that's all uh that's all i have for you is my twitter account harrison h smith and you can find stuff from there you know i've had the the pleasure and privilege and honor of subbing on your show when you're out of town or on vacation or sick or whatever and you know, the first one or two times I did it, I was real nervous and it was real, it was hard for me to do. And then it, it got easy for me the, you know, fourth, fifth or sixth time I did it. But I have the benefit of only having to do it like once every two or three or four months. So it's really easy for me to say what's on my mind because I haven't really had the opportunity to tell anyone about it except for my dog. <laughs> right. And, 
And, but I can't imagine having to fill three hours live monologue Monday through Friday. So my question for you is how many hours outside of the actual show do you have to put in to be prepared? Well, I mean, you know, I don't do anything else. If that's what you're asking, I don't have any hobbies. I don't do anything. No, I, uh, it's a constant thing, right? Because news is constantly breaking. I mean, that's the thing is that to me, the hardest part of the show is trying to talk about everything from that day in three hours. Like every day I leave stacks of news completely untouched because I just haven't had time to get to it, but you can always find links to that at my Substack, harrisonhillsmith.substack.com. I post all of uh, the links each morning. So, you know, all day I'm just bookmarking things on Twitter and reading articles and watching videos and yeah, just keep like a running sort of Rolodex of like, okay, what's going on? What do I need to talk about? What's, what's surging? What's, you know, a story that nobody else is covering? What are hints of things that maybe I can dig into a little deeper? So, you know, it's sort of, you're sort of always on, except when I like have to totally decompress when I just like bombard myself with stimuli. I'm just like listening to a podcast and have like cartoons on. I'm playing video games just to like cleanse my mind of all of the horrors that I've had to think about for the entire day. But yeah, it's a, there's, you have no idea how many times that I've either started writing a tweet and I'm just like, "Ah, I'm just going to save it for the show. Or just like, instead of tweeting out something, you just like, all right, I can actually go for five or 10 minutes on this idea. So I'm just going to write it down in a little note and bring it up during the show. So, and then we have, I mean, we have callers and we have amazing guests and we have tons of videos that we watch each time. So it's uh, I, I legitimately get like more nervous going on a podcast like this than I do sitting in the studio just because I'm used to it at this point. And there's like a routine and I can just sort of fall into it and feel real comfortable in it. Uh, so uh, to me, it's the easiest job in the world. And I feel blessed beyond measure just to be able to do it. So it's uh, it, I, I think it's legitimate. I think it's harder to do it just every once in a while than it is to do it every day. Mm-hmm. As long as you can, you know, handle the routine of like. That's the other thing. That's the other thing that's cool about it is like it's a radio show. It's programmed in. There's no excuses. There's no going back. There's no re-recording. There's no I didn't do that right. Let's let's do that again. Like you've got to be there at 8 a.m. because you're going live. And if you aren't there, your crew is sitting there going, do we show the empty desk? Do we you know, do we just right. play videos and, and try to cover for a little while? So it's like no excuses. There's no no handholding. No, like I'm going to be five minutes late today. It's like it's programmed in. The radio stations are beaming this around the world. Now is the time you have to be there. So I need that. I need dis. I need outside discipline because if it's just me, I love the uh, Douglas Adams from um, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. He says, I, I, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make when they fly by. That's me. Deadlines just when, like they're, the when they're not imposed from outside. Yeah, it's like the Charles Bukowski poem. Um, I'm a big Charles Bukowski fan. Uh, the days go by, I think, or run away. Yeah, that's what it is. He's got a line that's like, the days run away like wild horses over the hills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a cool, I don't know, he was just, he was something else, man. But were you in a different studio this morning? Yes, I was. Yeah, we had a, we have to replace a piece of equipment. So I was in the war room studio, okay. which today it wasn't so bad. The two days before, it's a little secret, a little behind the scenes for you. Owen Schroyer keeps that studio so cold 
it's unnatural. I mean, it's the, the dude must, his, he must be running like a fever all the time. Cause like I was freezing the first two days that we had to go out of the war room studio and the crew finally figured out how to turn the, the thermostat up. So it was a little bit warmer today. It wasn't so bad, but yeah, I was in, I was in Owen's studio, the, the most, the refrigerator that he broadcasts out of. Wow. Wow. Well, I thought it looked great. You sounded great this morning. Everybody should go check out, um, out the coverage. So you. did you do, I didn't do as much preparation for this as I intended to. Did you do preparation for actually doing the deep dive at all into the lab leak theory or the Hunter Biden laptop? I did some. I have a gigantic list. Let me, let me see. I have a, a Google doc here. Okay. I'm going to, Oh wait, if you ever do it? I switch from Mac to PC. So I'm always like hitting hot. Keys uh, yeah, that are not That are not like not correct. So, uh, I, but I can tell you here in just a second, just how many stories I found because it's a lot. Yeah. I found 50 stories yesterday, just literally searching through like my archives and Infowars and the gateway pundit. There's so, so do we want to set up for people? What you asked me was apparently we're, apparently we're going toe to toe head to head with a Pulitzer prize winning journalist right now. Yeah, I'll Is that what's it. going I'll on? Yeah. So, so what was frustrating was I thought that I was going to have to make all this stuff, but the fact of the matter is I don't have to make any of the stuff because, um, it's already been made by the pros. So I'll show you, I'll give you the context. So, um, let me see if I can find this guy's name. I can't even remember his name. Oh, what's his name? He's back here somewhere. I'm going to find it. So I tweeted at someone. I'll just show you. I'm just going to take a minute. You can hold, you can uh, carry the show for a second while I find this. Oh, oh, here it is. Found it. Okay. So this guy, Michael Hiltzik. Uh, let's see. This is showing you his profile. Yeah, it's carrying the tab. He's got 20,000 followers on Twitter, and he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, author. Read my book, Iron Empires, and my blog. This is the guy, right? He looks kind of like the vacuum cleaner from Brave Little Toaster. Wait, I don't see anything. Am I supposed to be seeing some? Oh, hold on. That's my fault. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So let me see if I can get this. He looks like the vacuum cleaner from, from the Brave Little he Toaster. He does, but it's showing you a different uh, <laughs> great Twitter callback. Chat. Yeah, I know. Okay, I'm going to find this. Here we go. Bear with me a second, folks, while I pull them up. Well, I can I can tell you. So this guy made the claim that there is no, like he wasn't mentioned words. He said there is no evidence, zero right. evidence, not a iota of evidence that COVID came from a lab. Right. That's Which exactly is frankly, it. it's an insane claim to make. It's an insane claim to make. Because right, and it's, say, that's different than saying there's no proof. Yeah, and you but to say, say there's no evidence, right? You can say there's no strong evidence. You could say there's no physical evidence. You can say right, it's not proven. There's no proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I think there is yeah. proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but you know beyond any any standard. But to say there's no evidence at all, right, is an insane claim to make. So Nate Silver posted this tweet on the 27th of February. He said, this is so refreshingly honest. Bad people thought the lab leak might be true. Therefore, as journalists, we couldn't be expected to actually evaluate the evidence for it. Basically, what happened was when Trump suggested that the lab leak was possible, that's when it became a political issue. Yeah. And so Michael Hiltzik yeah. responded, Nate, you don't know what you're talking about on this topic. There isn't any evidence 
supporting the lab leak to evaluate, not a spec. If you've seen any, feel free to tweet back. I responded on the 28th. Do you actually want to look at the evidence or are you being hyperbolic? If so, I'm happy to spend some time putting together some real sources for you, but I don't want to waste my time if you won't give it serious consideration. And then he proceeded to respond a number of times. I see you've fallen silent. Not surprising, really. And I literally didn't see any of this stuff till March 2nd. And I'm, I'm a busy guy. I run a business. I was like, yeah, I just noticed this for replies. I'll put something together as soon as I can. And finally, I just decided to try to do this podcast to see if I can put it together. But doing the research for this podcast, there is an abundance of evidence. And it's not just like, you know, Brett Weinstein. Like there are tons of scientists, tons of evolutionary biologists who uh, um, have very sophisticated actual genomic arguments for why this could right. be a lab leak, not to mention all of the other circumstantial evidence. So that's the gist. That was kind of the inspiration for this show. Um, but I, I did find the the content and I, I was like, well, I don't need to recreate it. I could just send them these links. But I was afraid that if I sent them a link of a video that was 30 minutes long of somebody like uh, Brett Weinstein, that he'd be like, oh, that guy's that guy's a kook because every they always do the ad hominem right. fallacy they're or, gonna, or the appeal uh, to authority. Yeah, a, a reason to ignore whatever evidence that you put forward. But c- can you bring up that first tweet? Because the Nate Silver tweet, I think, is an important one, too. Yeah, I, I, I tried to come up with a term for this. The term I came up with is subjective deflection. Subjective deflection. This is the term because you see it constantly. You see it everywhere. You see it every single time the Democrats have to contend with something that they have done. They say, I don't have to answer that question because it's a political question from my enemies. So like wrap your mind around this. They're saying that because their opponents in the political sphere are saying something that in and of itself is a reason they don't have to address it and that it's no longer important. So it's completely insane in a Democratic or Republican system where, you know, politicians are supposed to engage with the context and the, and the content of the media and things that are out there. It's not like they're saying, I don't have to deal with that. It's baseless, but they're trying to make something out of it. They're saying because Donald Trump said there might be a lab leak, therefore we don't have to pay attention to it and we don't have to give it any credence. It's an right. insane statement to make like that. That is such a bizarre way of seeing the world. The, proper and obvious and the way that I'm sure that we act is if you hear a liberal say something insane, you go, all right, that's a crazy talking point. I'm going to dig into it and figure out if it is really crazy or not. And if if it's not really crazy, then I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to go, okay, they're right on this, in this regard. I do that all the time on my show. Like I'm, I'm at times uncomfortable with how much I agree with like AOC and Ilhan Omar about uh, foreign policy and, and war and that sort of stuff. But I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy when we have disagreements that we can come together on. Yeah, I think that's an, an important. That's like the next step, too, because it's really easy to see the hypocrisy of the other side. But the next step that you have to do is you also have to check your own hypocrisy. So then when I hear something like that, it begs the question, all right, what is something that I vehemently disagree with that I would not have the audacity to say there is no evidence for? So, for example, I am a staunch advocate of the second amendment. And I believe everybody should have a gun and have the right to have a gun. There should be much fewer or less regulations around firearms, whether it's sales, ownership, whatever. Right. However, I would never say that there is not a speck of evidence that 
owning a firearm increases the likelihood of a, of a, of a death by a gunshot in your house. Right. Like, like th- there is evidence for that. I think there's a better argument to counter that, but I wouldn't say like, Oh, that's the most ridiculous notion ever. Like it may, it's a reasonable notion. I just disagree with it. Right. And so that, that one of the things that, that I've really seen is that we've transitioned from a culture that disagrees to a culture that is disagreeable. Like we just fucking mm. hate each other now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, guilty, right? I hate these fuckers. I hate these goddamn people. So I don't hate Heltzik. Uh, I don't know Heltzik, but I hate what I know of him so far. Like, because again, it's like it's it is legitimately hard to wrap your mind around this, and and you can just point to the number of times they do it. Most recently, the reason I was like, we need a word for this, is because both Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas, and uh, Sneaky Pete which I still don't know how to pronounce his last name. And I'm so glad that somebody came up with a nickname, Sneaky Pete for Pete, but a, but a, but a G, but I really don't know how to booty jig, booty jig, booty jig, whatever. I literally don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the correct pronunciation is, Uh, but it was both Mayorkas and Sneaky Pete on the same day, basically confronted with their failure and not even acknowledging the problem because it was a complaint that the Republicans had. So, you know, when they were like, Marcus, the, the border is open. This is a crisis. What do you have to say about that? And he just says, this, this issue has been politicized. I'm not even going to answer that. It's like, no, no, you don't get to cause a problem. And then when somebody, and it doesn't even have to be political opponents, you know, they do the same thing with like teachers who are uh, parents who go to their teachers and go, why did my kid get this book, right? You can have people who are themselves personally, totally apolitical, but they personally are impacted by policy. They go to complain about that policy. And the response is, we don't even have to give you the time of day because that's a right-wing talking point, And we can therefore dismiss it out of hand without even considering what, we, what it did to you, what effect it had, whether it's good or not. They just say, because you brought it up, I don't have to talk about it. I don't have to even admit that it's a problem. So Mayorkas and Sneaky Pete, both on the same day for the border and then for the uh, Ohio train derailment, which is like, this is a right. I get the conservatives are talking about this a lot, but we've had a thousand train accidents and nobody brought it up before. Right. It's like, no, no, no. You don't get to just ignore your own failure because your opponents are talking about it. It's just, it's a ridiculous way to see the world. And think about just with COVID, they said that caring about it while it was still in China was a racist talking point that they didn't have to consider because Trump's a racist. And that's the only reason he was bringing it up. The travel ban, you know, the travel ban during COVID, he wanted to stop flights from China. They said, we aren't even going to consider that. Go hug a Chinese. Remember Nancy Pelosi did a thing where she's like, go to Chinese parades and hug a Chinese person. So like this whole thing has almost been caused by this impulse by the Democrats to go because Trump said it or because conservatives said it, we don't have to give it any credence. We don't have to listen to it at all. They did it with the lab leak. Right. They did it with the existence of covid in the first place. They did it with the origin of covid coming from China as a as a country saying that's a racist talking point. So I don't have to address it. Uh, They've done it with the vaccine. They did it with. Of course, they did it with the uh, election, the stolen election in 2020. Right. Hey, we think the election is stolen. Ah, It's just a, a conservative talking point. That's what Republicans want you to think. So we don't have to even address it, even when there's tangible evidence that it's the case. So like that first tweet by Nate Silver, I think is, is, it makes me see red, man. 
it makes me really, really question whether there is any coming to terms with these people, whether there's any ability for them to have the necessary and requisite humility to even address the problems that need to be dealt with in the first place. Like, how do you deal with someone like that? How do you deal with someone who dismisses out of hand a perfectly reasonable conclusion because it came from right. someone they don't like? Like, it's just, it's right. insane. Well, and, 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 and here's the thing too. Like, if it was proven because new evidence were to come in that COVID was actually from natural sources, it did manifest in nature and, you know, hop from a batter or an animal to humans. If that was proven, I would have no problem with that. I wouldn't feel disappointed that I had the wrong intuition. Like, I don't care you know, one way or the other, because it doesn't really matter politically. I guess it does because there's a culpability component for China. But what I don't understand, other than what you just said about the fact that just because Trump said it, what I don't understand is why the left seems to want it to be true that COVID was not a lab leak. Like, why do they want that to be true so badly? No, that's the thing, man. It's a compulsion with them. It's like a pathology. It's like mm. a, it's a, it is a misconstruction in their brain somewhere. That, that's, that's why I say like, I don't, and increasingly more and more in my show and stuff, it's like, we, we cannot talk to these people. We cannot reason with these people because how do you reason with somebody who, as you just pointed out, like has this knee jerk reaction to something they're not invested in. It doesn't benefit them politically at all. It's just this, this impulse, almost like a, like a, like an animal rutting, you know, it's just like, they don't know why they're doing it. They just know it's, it's what they need to do. They just know that because Trump said it first, that they have to uh, oppose it with everything they've got. They have to, you know, ignore it, cast it off to the side, or maybe they, fully get the implications because that's the other thing is that you remember when the vaccine mandates were first suggested there was article after article politicians everybody had this visceral reaction right when people first said hey we think there's going to be vaccine passports everybody was like oh my god no no god no that would never happen right that's the first impulse that's the correct impulse because they because they understand the even biden was saying it would never wouldn't happen yeah and they and you know, Vice was writing articles. I'm, I'm, I can remember a very specific one where they're just like, no, nobody's doing vaccine passports because they get it. They understand like, OK, what you're talking about is a, a passport to live your normal life that is dependent on you taking a shot that doesn't even exist yet. Like that's they get how horrifying that is. Uh, and then they override that somehow. And then, you know, six months later, they're demanding a vaccine uh, mandate, even though six months before they understood perfectly how how viscerally wrong it was. So I, I don't I, legitimately I think there's like there's like something wrong with these. There's something wrong with Nate Silver. There's something wrong with this uh, toaster dude, <laughs> the vacuum dude. Like there's something wrong with these people that they are incapable of seeing reality uh, unfiltered. And that's all you really have to do. Have you had a chance yet? I know you're busy as hell to read Michael Malice's new book, The White Pill. No. So he just came out. With, do you follow Malice at all? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. He's got a great podcast called You're Welcome. Uh, great Twitter account. He's a major anarchist. He was actually just on Joe Rogan yesterday. I yeah, live I here in Austin. I, I think he used to be friends. Uh, he might. He's probably still friends with Alex. I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, actually, yeah. He, he took a picture of uh, this, the Infowars studio today and posted on Instagram. He might have been on Alex Jones today. I don't know. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah he, was, he was on like yesterday, I think. Yeah. So anyway, this book, man, the white pill is so good. 
it's a history of all sorts of things, but it really goes through what it was truly like to live in communism. I'm about halfway through it. So I'm in the Russian form of communism. And one of the things that blew my mind about it is because when you hear stories about communism, obviously a major function of their society, a major function of their enforcement was uh, informants, inf informing on your neighbor, children informing on their parents. We see it in movies like Equilibrium too. It, it's, it's a very Orwellian true thing that the more authoritarian a government is, the more the citizens inform on one another for favor. And the, as an American who's on, only experienced freedom, my interpretation of that was all oh, these people were so scared that they felt that they had to inform in order to protect their family or themselves or whatever. And what he pointed out in the book uh, was that that wasn't actually the reason people were informing. People were informing because they felt like they wanted to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's like another level of, of tyranny, like where, you, where you've actually been brainwashed into believing. And, and we saw that with COVID where there was this antagonism toward the notion of vaccine mandates. Oh, that's ridiculous. And then there were instances of people reporting on their neighbors for not following like mask policy or calling the authorities when someone wasn't wearing a mask in a public yeah. place, like really silly stuff. I mean, I was at the airport and I saw a guy in a suit, young guy my age walking by and he had a mask on and the mask on it just said, it goes over your nose, right? Just like he was just rubbing it in your face that he was wearing a mask and you're a dumbass if you don't have it over your nose. Right. And like, obviously all of the data shows that the masks, unless you're wearing like an N95 didn't work. And it was public information at the time. And it, like the cognitive dissonance just blew my mind. Um, you know, it, it, we struggle with that. It goes even further than that, I think. So I totally agree with, with what you're saying. And I was reading a, a good book. I don't know. I don't know if I could find the, um, the title of it now, but it was about a KGB defector who actually came over to the uh, British and, and American side during the Cold War. And it was his story. He wrote it. And he was talking about, you know, what it's like having your wife as an informant right? Because your wife valued her relationship with a state more than her relationship with you. And there's almost this, this inverse thing of what we would think. Uh, we even saw it during January 6th, kids testifying against their father and sending him away for six decades. There's a guy that went to jail for 60 years because his children testified against him. And so there's this weird inverse where they go, the, the more despicable thing you do, the more you are sacrificing the more virtuous you are. So it's not like, oh my God, I have to turn in my, my parents. It's like, that's how committed I am. I have to turn in my parents. You know, people liked that the vaccine made them suffer. They liked getting the vaccine and feeling sick the next day because they thought, yes, I, I, this is how good I am. This is what I'm willing to go through for other people. I'm sacrificing mm -hmm. myself for the better, for the greater humanity. So the worse it is, the more virtuous I am, the, the more difficult it is to testify against my own father. That's just how committed I am. It's proof of how virtuous I am. So right. yes, yeah, especially, especially in, in communist countries, I think it was a little bit of both because there definitely was the fear aspect. There definitely, and, and there's the paranoia aspect of, am I, you know, is this person really asking me to go against the communist party or is this a trick from the communist party is, does this guy have orders? And they said, hey, go right. ask person to, to betray. And if he doesn't tell us, if he doesn't turn around and come to us, then we know he holds secrets from us. We're going to send him to the gulag. So there's like, there's so many different levels to it. 
And yeah, literally read anything about what it was like at any point during the Soviet Union, but especially in like the heat of the Cold War, the 70s, 80s. And it's it's baffling how paranoid they had to be, how their paranoia was justified, how especially if they were actually in the security structure, you know, all of the classic stuff where the KGB would break into your house and not even necessarily do anything, but just move stuff around a little bit just to let you know they had been there, just to leave a little bit of evidence, just so you know that you're not outside of their reach or, you know, yeah, that, you know, you didn't know if you're, you couldn't tell your wife how you were feeling because she would run to the, to the KGB. You certainly go to, couldn't go to any of your friends or anything. I mean, it's, it's the entire society was bent around that idea of you will have no privacy. You will own nothing right. <laughs> and you'll right. have to, pretend to be happy, you know? So, uh, yeah, hyper, yeah, hyper isolation, even amongst a crowd. So I, I, I would like to read the, that. the great irony of collectivism. Yeah. And I just wanted to show this real quick. I know that it's, it's, it's a drawback, but, uh, just speaking of the mask thing, this was published by the United States environmental protection agency. The EPA published this article on April 5th of 2021. And they have a whole chart here. Do you remember how you, when you went to the airport, you had to wear a mask, but it couldn't be a, a, a bandana, right? It had to be mm-hmm. like a real mask. Check this out. You scroll down here. This is the um, fitted filtration ef- uh, efficiency or efficacy, right? So they have all the different types of masks that you can wear and what percentage of viral load is, is blocked by it, right? So mm-hmm. whether it's got an aluminum nose bridge. And if you look, a cotton bandana is either worn like this or this is 49% effective, which is more than like most other forms of masks, 28%, 26% like this. You scroll on the whole chart, 38% for the paper ones that everyone was wearing, right? right. I mean, if you wore it like that, you know, with the hoops, t- with the twisted, and then you're at 60%, but nobody was wearing it like that. You didn't have to wear it like that. So like the bandana was actually more effective than the way in which everyone was wearing the masks, but it was the one that wasn't allowed. That was what was so frustrating to me. It was like, none of this was based on reason. It was all based off of just, you looked like you weren't conforming if you were wearing a bandana. So it was harmful to like the narrative or the brand or the propaganda to do it, even though it was actually safer for you to wear a bandana than the uh, uh, face the mask. paper one. Yeah. See, yeah. I, I, had, I hadn't seen that chart before. That's super interesting. I, I do it's remember, the EPA. Yeah. And I remember sort of around that same time period having an argument with some of my family and going, okay, if, if the masks are effective, then only the medical ones are right. Only the official like N95 ones are, but the fact that they, that you could put a tissue up and tie it around your ears, and that would be considered a mask means it's not about efficacy. It's about submission. It's about the look. It's about looking like you're conforming. So it's almost the opposite or like, you know, in a weird way, parallel or or perpendicular to what you're saying. Uh, Because yeah, it was like, it didn't actually matter how uh, efficacious it was. It was just whether you were doing it or not. They wanted wanted to know that you were willing to put something over your mask, which is why actually Michael Malice, didn't he have the uh, minimum re- minimum requirement thing where it was like lace and you could breathe through it really easily, but it technically fulfilled 
that sounds like something he would do. I, I'm not familiar with that, but it sounds think, like something. I think he that would was do. one that he did. It, it was called like minimal compliant or something like the minimal compliant mask. And, uh, and yeah, you know, you could, you could have lace that was just completely breathable, did nothing to stop air or molecules or anything. And yet it would count because at least you were submitting, at least you were doing the thing that you were supposed to do. Uh, so yeah, it's, it was all psychological from the very beginning. Hmm. So I did a little bit of research on the, uh, the, the, the lab leak theory, and I'm not going to go in deep because I'm not well-versed enough to do it justice in terms of going into the details of the biology, but I did make a list. So here is a list of like eight things that I came across when I was kind of looking in arguments in favor of the lab leak theory. Number one, Wuhan deleted their databases, their database of viruses around the time that the pandemic started, mm -hmm. their online database, right? Number two, Wuhan kept it a secret that they harvested multiple deadly bat viruses from a group of miners who contracted SARS-like diseases. Three researchers from the Wuhan Institute were hospitalized in November of 2019. The U.S. has incentive to cover it up because we outsourced gain-of-function research to China since it's illegal here, just like we outsourced slave labor to China since it's illegal here. Um, elements such as the uh, furin site seem to be engineered. So the way that uh, COVID-19 basically attaches, my understanding, attaches and infects human beings. The, this, this, this genetic sequence on it is something that's very unique to uh, being infectious to human beings. It's not, and it's not something that comes from uh, like a bat or, or another animal in nature. It just seems mm -hmm. to have come out of nowhere uh, with this virus. Um, it, it seems hyper coincidental that the virus started in a city right next to uh, a, a lab <laughs> that researched viruses like this. Yeah, um, huge, huge coincidence. Wasn't that, wasn't that crazy what a coincidence that was? Yeah, and the virus appears to be excellent at spreading among humans, minks, and ferrets, which is likely to be what was used in the lab. And the other thing, too, is the virus is much more infectious indoors than outdoors, which implies that it evolved in an indoor environment not mm. out like outside in nature which which i think is interesting so those are just like circumstantial pieces none of those prove anything and all of those have potentially reasonable explanations other than that this was leaked from a lab but when you take all of these anomalies and this is just a short list there are much more there are many more but when you take all these anomalies and you put them together i mean it, it's very reasonable to 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 hold the hypothesis or, or believe the theory that this was an accidental leak from a lab. I mean, it seems like this was China's Chernobyl. They just screwed up. You know, let's let's put it this way. Look at it like it's a murder investigation. Look like look look at it like it's a suspicious death investigation. Say there is a death where, you know, some young healthy person falls down the stairs and ends up dead. And you don't know if it was an accident, could have perfectly well been a total mistake and and that would be very sad or it was on purpose and by design and somebody pushed them and, and wanted to cause their death. Cause that's, that's how you have to look at this. And so when you're, when you're trying to solve a murder, you look at means, motive and opportunity, right? But first you have to decide whether it was a murder or whether it was an accident. Well, if you go and you find out that the person who was with them at the time 
lied about being with them. When the police first questioned them, they said, no, I wasn't there at all. I, I heard a noise and came running out. And then you see the security camera footage and actually it looks like they were walking together right before the guy fell. That alone would be enough to shoot that guy up to the top of the suspect list, right? Because lying in and of itself is evidence of wider wrongdoing. People don't just lie to lie. They lie for a purpose. They lie for a particular reason. So when this guy asks, he says there is no evidence. First, you have to ask, you know, what is evidence and does circumstantial evidence count? Right. If there is no physical evidence, you have to ask the question, why is that? Why is there no physical evidence? Is there physical evidence not being presented because it doesn't exist, because they looked for it and found none? Or is it because the search for the physical evidence itself was corrupted, subverted, and you know, messed up? Again, when you go to, and this is more than a murder, right? We're talking about a mass murder. We're talking about maybe the greatest mass murder in the history of the world, the release of the COVID pandemic. Sure. You know, even the, even the more conservative numbers, hundreds of thousands of people died from this. So to treat it with anything less than the seriousness that you would treat somebody falling down the stairs is ridiculous, right? Sure. So, and even if you didn't die from it, if you got it, you couldn't talk to anybody for 10 days. I mean, it impacted everyone. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, Believe me. Yeah. The, the psychological damage, the economic damage. And of course, that's another thing that we could go back to the what I call subjective deflection, where when we all, including Trump and myself, were saying we shouldn't lock down, this is going to be economically devastating. The consequences of lockdown will be worse than the virus ever will be. Their answer was that's just a, a Trump talking point because they value the economy over people's lives when the reality is the economy being destroyed will destroy more people's lives than the virus. So, you know, every 1% that unemployment increases, 40,000 Americans die. Did you know that? Uh, I believe it. I mean, increased, increased stress, heart failure, things like losing your job, financial pressure. It, they did sure. a study in the 80s. I believe it was in the 80s they did the study. And at the time, it was like 38,000 people die for everyone. But now the population is a little bit larger. So it's closer to 40,000. Every 1% that unemployment goes up, 40,000 people die. So when you're going to do a lockdown, there are going to be casualties. So you, you simply have to weigh, all right, how many lives are we going to save versus how many are we going to lose? Dude, outside, I mean, they, the numbers that they've said for the number of cancers that went unscreened because people weren't allowed to go to the hospital to, for regular checkups alone is more than the number of people that died from COVID itself. So uh, we, could, we could go go on and on about that. But for, for the point of evidence, so again, just thinking of this like a murder, uh, if we have no physical evidence, why is that? Is it because nobody ever looked for physical evidence, right? If the person who comes on the scene goes, look, the guy fell down the stairs, it was an accident, case closed, and that's it. Of course, you don't have any evidence of the murder. You didn't look for any. The, the guy, and hey, if it turns out that the guy who was at the top of the stairs right before the guy fell is also the lead investigator, that's a, that's a big point of concern, and you should look into that, which is exactly what happened here. But to think about the lab leak as a theory, you have to ask the question, you know, first of all, you have to ask, is this even a theory that is worth considering on its face or can it be written off out of sheer absurdity? Is it so fantastical? Is it such an absurd thing that we can just write it off? And as we narrow down suspected origins, you know, we can write off things like aliens dropped it. We can write off things like, uh, you know, I don't know, it was, it, it came from a video game, right? Like there are some things where it's like came from a video game, but that, no, I'm just not even going to consider that because that's a waste of my time. 
the lab leak hypothesis is not only imminently possible, there is video of Peter Daszak, the man who funded the Wuhan lab through EcoHealth Alliance, and also, by the way, turned out to be the investigator, the only American, he's British, but the only American investigator on the WHO team that was sent to Wuhan to investigate was Peter Daszak. So here you have the main suspect acting as the main investigator. Another Meanwhile, the WHO will not say Taiwan. They say Chinese Taipei. So they're pretty, they're pretty much run by the CCP. 100%. And, you know, the, the, the Chinese certainly covered it up. They certainly, as you pointed out, uh, deleted a lot of their, um, you know, the data, yeah, the data, the codes, you know, they, they covered up the, the outbreak for a while at first. But I mean, we all knew it was happening. We all knew it was happening for months before the American government ever acknowledged it. So even that's not exactly an, uh, an excuse. But Peter Daszak has a video from, I think, 2015 or 2017, where he explains in detail, step by step, how one would humanize a coronavirus, a bat coronavirus. So it's not just possible, right? You cannot, it's, it's imminently possible. It is something they were actually actively doing. So you can't write it off as fantastical and you can't claim that there is no evidence because there is an overabundance of circumstantial evidence. There is no physical evidence, but that's specifically because the investigation never looked for physical evidence. They never investigated Wuhan, the Wuhan lab. They investigated right. the wet market and they took a tour of the Wuhan lab, but they never investigated, investigated it in the way that one would investigate a crime of this matter. So that in and of itself is evidence of suspicious activity. That is the person who was the last person to see the dead person alive lying about their last whereabouts. And in a murder case, yeah, the smallest little lie is a big deal, right? If right. you say if you say I went to Wendy's when really you went to McDonald's, that's like a red flag to investigators. That's like, okay, why is he lying about that? What happened at McDonald's that he doesn't want us to know about or, or whatever, right. right? So so the fact that not only do we know they they covered up and tried to shift away from the lab leak theory, Fauci actually paid for and commissioned a paper that he then, without admitting that he commissioned it, went on to cite that very paper as a reason to dismiss the lab leak. So he was actively uh, involved in creating the alibi, essentially, right? Right. Actively right. involved in steering attention away from it, which again, you have to ask if this was a naturally occurring virus, why would he do that? What would be his, uh, his impetus for doing that? What would be, what would be his motive for trying to get away from the lab. Because again, if you're somebody who is entrusted with being the superlative power in charge of guiding America through this crisis, the number one thing you would want is accurate information. The origin of the virus would be the most important information you could find in terms of how to deal with the virus, the deadliness of the virus, where it's coming, where, it, where it's going, how it mutated. All of these things are absolutely necessary in the treating of and confronting of and, and preventing the spread of the virus. So obviously it was a cover-up. Like there's no question to it. There's no, like if this was a murder case, it would be a conviction because it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. It's not saying that it's, you know, there's another standard. There are multiple standards, right? There's like beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember the other ones. There's one that's like slightly less. That's like an, an overabundance of evidence. Um, meaning like, yeah, you can have some reasonable doubt, but it's preponderance of evidence. 
for for hundreds of evidence. Exactly. That's like what like grand juries and, and stuff work off of um, where, where the, you know, conviction, but you know, it's not so high that you have to have video of them doing it and an admission of them doing it, you know, and them on tape admitting they did it and them with the, because then, you know, that's not just beyond a reasonable doubt. That's beyond any, any doubt whatsoever. We aren't at that level of certainty, but we fulfill right up to it. I mean, right mm. up to it. And I would say we even, we, we even possibly cross that line into an abundance of, um, in a, an overabundance, a preponderance of evidence, a beyond any doubt whatsoever for, for multiple reasons. For one thing, the Wuhan lab not only was doing this coronavirus gain-of-function research, not only was it funded by America through EcoHealth Alliance and the NIH. Right. And Fauci says that they didn't fund gain-of-function research, that they funded something else. But if I give you $5,000 and you spend $5,000 that you already had on something else, I enabled that behavior. So yeah. even if the five grand I gave you was for your mortgage or whatever, if you spend five grand and you buy illegal firearms, like you wouldn't have been able to do that had I not given you the five grand to cover your other expenses that were a priority. So to say that we didn't fund it, even though it wasn't directly funded by us, we still enabled it. It's also just a matter of semantics. It's, it's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. It's, you know what? It's semantics. And frankly, I'm anti-semantic. I'm anti-semantic. And, and you can take that to the bank. But uh, but seriously, you know, no pun intended. Pfizer. Yeah. Pfizer just did it right where they said they were caught on tape with the guy going, you were performing gain of function research. And Pfizer came out and said, no, 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 we're performing accelerated evolution or something. Right. They called it a different name. But for all intents and purposes, it's it's exactly the same. I didn't push him down the stairs. I nudged him. Uh, down the flight. You know, it's like, okay, you shoved him down the stairs. You, you did gain a function research, but here, here's some of the, here's some of the headlines uh, I pulled for today from July 20th of last year, FBI investigated decision by NIH Fauci and Dr. Collins, who's Fauci's boss to fund Wuhan lab and its controversial testing of bat coronaviruses. Oh, well, we were just testing it. We were just testing different variations of it that we created in a lab, right? Obvious. Uh, not only that, scientists actually discovered a chunk of DNA in COVID that perfectly matches a Moderna patented sequence from before the pandemic. So uh, a group of researchers discovered that COVID-19 has a small piece of DNA that matched the genetic sequence patented by Moderna Inc. three years before the start of the pandemic in 2021. A base, basic local alignment search tool, BLAST, searched for the 12 nucleotide insertions uh, led us to a 100% reverse match in a proprietary sequence found in the U.S. patent 9,587,003 filed on February 4th, 2016. In bioinformatics, BLAST is an algorithm and program for comparing primary biological sequence information, such as the amino acid sequences of proteins or the nucleotides of DNA and or RNA sequences. COVID-19 is made up of 30,000 letters of genetic code to carry the information it needs to, uh, and needs to spread that are known to nucleotides. The commonality was a small piece made up of 19 nucleotides, but the chance of it being a random match just occurring in nature and, and by coincidence matching this uh, thing is like one in a trillion. It's like DNA. They essentially found, you know, matching DNA. This is like matching DNA on the, on the corpse, right? This is also, weirdly enough, there's a story on the Weather Channel, which is a, 
but it's like the Weather Channel slash the Times of India. It's very weird, but it says new study finds COVID-19 DNA linked to Moderna patent, fi patent filed in 2016. It sparks discussion on lab leak theory. So that doesn't necessarily mean that Moderna created it. It means that it was running tests and coming up with all of the various iterations that could be created from it. And we're patenting that for eventual use. Sure, or China just did an IP intellectual property theft and used the patented DNA sequence in their own experiments and just... You know what I mean? They do that all the time with other tech. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's not a bad thought either. But of course, again, they were working with Eco Health Alliance. They were working with mm, right. uh, Peter Daszak. And, and, you know, a whistleblower has come out and said that Peter Daszak just before the COVID-19 pandemic uh, had actually told him that the CIA had approached him. And he was asking, like, do you think I should work with them? This is Dr. Andrew Huff. Dr. Andrew Huff says that and he, he worked in them. He's a whistleblower. He's sort of blown the, the lid off the whole thing. And he's he's not, you know, uh, shy about saying it was absolutely a lab leak and that uh, Peter Daszak was likely working with the CIA at the time. So you've got the cover up that happened. Right. Emails show Dr. Fauci commissioned a February 2020 paper to disprove COVID leak from Wuhan lab. This is actually a fairly recent story. This is what a lot of the talks at, at, in Congress have been about recently. And again, just looking at this like a murder, just putting this in, in human terms that we can understand. This is the police getting a recording of the guy they suspect of being a murderer, calling his friend and going, right. hey, man, I really need you to say we were bowling on Tuesday. You've got to say we were bowling on Tuesday at eight. I need you to say that. It was a cover up. It was it was an alibi. And he did it in front of everybody. So not only did he do what what they caught him doing, they caught him fabricating this scientific study to then point to without admitting, not saying, oh, I commissioned this and, and it says there's no lab leak. He didn't say that. He said, well, these respectable scientists have commissioned it. Scientists, by the way, who got $9 million in NIH funding shortly after doing this. They were also the ones that emailed Dr. Fauci saying, we think this was a lab leak. They have a conference call. Two days later, they put out this article saying it's not a lab leak. A few days after that, they get $9 million, right? So this was orchestrated. We know all the people, we know all the players, we know the timeline of how it went, why they did what they did. It was about getting money from NIH uh, and Dr. Fauci. But you also have to consider, not only was he you know, derelict in his, in his duty of actually trying to get to the truth to provide the best care as head of the medical, um, you know, whatever. If, if I'm a murder suspect and I call Chase and go, hey, man, could you say we were bowling when, when my I friend died? I got That's you. a risk, right? That's like a major risk. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> I know I can always reach out to you. No, but that's a, that's a major risk to take. So you have to ask, why would he put himself in a position like this? I was thinking about this with Jack Maxey, too, in, in your old thing. When you were talking about the 50 intelligence agents who signed a letter saying that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, you have to right. ask yourself, why would they sign a letter that was such easily disprovable lies? Everybody knew it was it was going to come out eventually that Hunter's laptop was real. So they put their name to a letter that they knew was going to be proven to be false. That's an act of desperation, just like these Dr. Fauci commissioning a paper. That's they needed the talking point for that last month of the election cycle. They needed that talking point, you know, that because, 50 intelligence professional. Be, right. Because just like Peter Strzok in 2016 with his insurance plan, they thought if we can get Joe Biden into office, then we can cover up everything that we did. So we can do whatever we want now, but as long as it's effective, as long as we get what we want, as long as we get Joe right. Biden in it's office, all in. then all of the crimes that we did, we can cover up through Joe Biden being in office. So that's the same thing that happened here with Dr. Fauci. For him to 
put himself in this vulnerable position where he is doing suspicious things to try to cover this up. This was an act of desperation because he knew what the truth was. None of this makes any sense at all if it's a if it's a naturally occurring virus. In fact, you wouldn't commission this this article. Right. He wouldn't take that risk. He wouldn't he wouldn't dismiss or try to cover up theories that it was uh, well, a lab and leak. The, and the counter to saying there's no evidence that it was a lab leak. What's what evidence is there that it that it was natural? Like, have you identified the bat? Is the bat native to the area? Like, how do you know that this? Do you know what community of either bats or humans that this this virus was allowed to uh, infect and evolve in before it reached the level of uh, virality that that it that it finally achieved? Like, there's no evidence of this virus actually developing on an evolutionary evolutionary path toward its final outcome there's only no virus and then everywhere the virus which mm -hmm. is very bizarre i mean we haven't seen the likes of that since hiv well and that wasn't naturally occurring either if you really want to get into you it you don't think so 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 i do want to hear your thoughts on hiv but i, I want to share something related to hiv and fauci uh yeah. that is indirectly personal okay so i don't i don't know if i've talked to you about this harrison i think i have you know that i i've got type a hemophilia right yes so it's a bleeding disorder. Uh, Which the Ryan White story. Yeah, you won't let me try to shoot an apple off your head with my bow and arrow. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it, very in the, so the life expectancy for hemophiliac without medicine is about 11 years for a severe hemophiliac. And the way that you die, if you look at like, um, like the Russian family was famous for the hemophiliac son, the way that you mm -hmm. die is actually internal bleeding rather than um, uh, like bleeding out. So it typically impacts your joints. Like if I don't take my medicine all, and you see me in two weeks, I will be limping because I'll be bleeding oh, in my ankle. Oh, uh, it, it attacks the joints. And then what happens is eventually the internal bleeding gets so bad that you, you suffocate in many cases. Hemophiliacs, oh. number one cause of death now since the medicine is available is aneurysm, like in your 60s. You just have aneurysm wow. done, right? So anyway, what happened was in the 70s and 80s, new medicine was developed to treat hemophilia for the first time. So what would happen before, if you had a hemophiliac child, is your kid would come home and they'd be limping really bad because they played basketball and they weren't supposed to and something sprung loose in their ankle and it didn't heal, right? Oh and what you'd have to do is take them to the hospital and give them a blood transfusion so that they had blood that could clot. To heal the wound, oh, wow. right? Okay, yeah. And then what happened was there was a big uh, um, advance in, in the medicine where they figured out how to uh, take blood don donations and um, isolate the factor eight protein, which is the protein that hemophiliacs don't produce. It's the protein that you naturally produce that makes your blood clot internally, externally. It's what makes scabs, everything. Mm -hmm. All your healing is based on this factor eight protein. It's like the vitamin D of not bleeding, right? And so what they were able to do is take blood donations and uh, synthesize it into this factor eight protein and give it to hemophiliacs preventatively. So three times a week at home, you inject yourself in, in a vein and you do an intravenous plunge of this synthetic protein. It lasts about a day and a half. And you're pretty, I mean, you have a pretty normal life expectancy. You, you can't play football, but you're not going to be limping around and crippled, right? And the crazy thing about this, and what I want to do is actually share my screen and show you um, the, I want to do a window. The crazy thing about this is if you look at uh, Fauci's career, for example, 
1980, he was appointed the uh, chief uh, the chief of the NIAIDS Laboratory of Immunoregulation. So this is like a subsidiary or subcategory of the NIH that mm -hmm. focuses on immune response. This is in 1980, right before the AIDS outbreak. And he was uh, a director in 1984, right? So he was really heavily involved in the, the research or the, the government entities that were responsible for the research of things like AIDS when AIDS broke out. He got the job before it really broke out, but it broke out right when he was sort of the guy, okay? Yeah. And what's fascinating is if you look at the hemophilia story, and this is why I was so skeptical about all of the COVID-related um, narrative throughout this whole process. If you look at it, in 1981, concern was growing over an unidentified infectious disease associated with immune system collapse that would later be known as AIDS, right? It's found mostly in homosexual men. I'm sorry, can, can, we, can we note for a second that they didn't know, and, and there's still some speculation whether it was a virus or not. They originally thought it was a cancer, and it was popularly known as gay cancer. Can we just refer to it as gay cancer from now on? I'm not kidding. That's absolutely true. I'm not calling it that, but I appreciate the. Uh, no, that's, the that's what it was. That's legitimately what it was called. I'm not even joking. It was called gay I, no, cancer. No, I believe it. it I believe it. Out. And so on July 16th of 1982, the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported that three hemophiliacs had acquired the disease. That's AIDS, right? Mm. And what basically they figured out was there were blood donors in major cities that were giving blood for money because they were either junkies or whatever. And uh, their blood was infected with AIDS and they were making the medicine out of their blood um, and the yeah. virus was surviving and parents were injecting their kids inadvertently with hepatitis and HIV. And this ultimately resulted in the death of six to 10,000 hemophiliacs just in the United States. Okay. Oh yeah. Now the crazy thing isn't that, they accidentally did this. The crazy thing is that they knew this was happening as early as 1982. And the drug companies didn't stop selling the contaminated medication and didn't even inform the parents of the issue until 1985. And then when the United States finally, and this is all while Fauci's at the NIAIDS. Uh, and in 1985, when they finally made it illegal to sell the contaminated product in the united states what did the drug companies do they sold their contaminated inventory overseas right like all right well we can't sell it here we don't want to waste it so they literally just murdered people for the bottom line all over the world and in the united states and they knew about it for years in the united states before anything was done about it while fauci and it's not his fault like exclusively but he was in a leadership position he should have known and there were conferences. You can go back and see the minutes of people talking about this. There were doctors raising red flags. There were hemophiliacs going and protesting. And yeah. there were, it, I'll tell you, when I, when I was a kid, I went to see a hematologist every six months. His name was Dr. Bohassan. He was awesome. We'd go to St. Louis. I'd go do a checkup. They, measure, they make sure that I can bend my elbow because you develop arthritis when you bleed internally like that. Right. Just a regular checkup. Make sure the medicine was working. I didn't develop an inhibitor. And when he retired... Uh, I went to his retirement party. I think I was probably uh, 16. We, we drove down to St. Louis. We went to his retirement party at the hospital. And I looked around and I saw all these parents everywhere, but no hemophiliacs. Because everyone that was born before 1990, the year I was born, was fucking dead. And these parents went to Dr. Bohassan's retirement party because he took care of their kids the best he could when they had AIDS and they were bleeding, right? They all fucking died. 
And this, so the drug companies don't care about you. The government doesn't care about you. The, the bureaucratic tape is all about cover-up. There's more details on the story. You can watch documentaries about it. You can read the Wikipedia pages. The Wikipedia information on this topic is accurate. And they covered it up. There's email exchanges. There's, 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 there's documents of meetings where they're like, hey, we don't want Congress to know about this. We're going to just stop selling it quietly. And eventually they got sued. Killed tens well, of no, they got sued. People. They got sued. They, they got sued. Um, but they only had to pay every um, uh, uh, plaintiff 100 grand. So it was like nothing compared to how much money they made. And mass so yeah. it was a mass murder. And it, it, like they didn't mean to, but when they knew it was happening, they didn't stop it either. You know what I mean? Because so, so, so like this, these are the Fauci's. These are the Moderna's, the Pfizer's, the Baxter's. These are the drug. These are the same drug companies that run commercials about ESG and diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you think for a minute, they give a fuck. They do not at all. And so I don't know about the or- origins of, uh, uh, of HIV. I haven't l- dived into those conspiracy theories. Um, we call it gay cancer here. Right, right, right. But <laughs> no, uh, I do I do know that they they really let it rip in this for for a much longer time than they had to. Absolutely everyone should read The Real Anthony Fauci by RFK Jr. It lays out that story. It lays out the entire 40-year crime spree of Anthony Fauci and in a lot of ways, it's very blackpilling because you realize just how long it's been going on, just how many times they've gotten away with this ex- exact thing. I mean, that's not the only instance of right. exactly the same situation. They find out a pharmaceutical product has some horrific uh, side effect and they just start selling it to India and they just you know paralyze or murder tens of thousands of people. Uh, but they, you know, they sell it at, at a lower cost and just sell it to India. It's time and time again. And so you realize not only has this been going on for so long, uh, Dr. Fauci has been at the top of it for so long and they've gotten away with it every single time. And it requires every layer, every level of the power structure to cooperate from the pharmaceutical companies to the oversight board, to the politicians that are granting the money to the uh, universities that are running the tests for the pharmaceutical companies it becomes such a tangled web and it becomes such a morass and such a cesspit that in a way you just go, okay, there's no reforming this. There's no, there's no fire Anthony Fauci and everything's good. We need a culling, a, a conflagration, a burning of it all because it is so corrupt down to the very bones. And just look at, look at health just with your own eye. You don't even need stats. Look at human health in America over the last 40 years. Anthony Fauci has been at the head of American medicine for those. Even the, even the food pyramid is just a fucking lie. It's hey, it's better than it's better than uh, bugs and and fake meat, <laughs> right? Um, we're we're all we're gonna long for the day where they were just telling us to eat a lot of carbs and uh, you know uh, avoid meat. It's uh, it's getting it's getting worse than ever. Yeah, it's Dude, true. Shout out, shout out to all the all the boys in the chat. I haven't even been looking. I I can't do chat and an interview at the same time. I'm like a, a locomotive. I see, Brett, I see Timothy. I saw Max early on. Mr. Boston chiming in a mm. lot. What's oh, up, like him. Hey guys. Brett, Brett dropped a dropped a juicy super chat. Oh, good. He's the only one though. It's lonely. It's lonely up there, boys. Let's get them. Uh, let's get them super chats in. Yeah, I'll ASF answer, Bear. That's right. Any question. I'll answer yeah, any awesome. question in a super chat. And it goes all all towards Chase. Let's make Chase some money. 
He's too he's too humble to ask for money himself. I, I don't want your money. I just want your I just want your your subscription and your follow to the What's channel. Up, the janitor seventy three. I love you too. <laughs> uh, yeah, do you know it's? You're right. I mean, God, thank God you were born when you were. Um, yeah, it's it is horrifying, man. It's absolutely horrifying what they've been able to to get away with, and you know, it's not even. It's like, I don't, I don't even want, you know, thank God that we have medical advancements. Thank God that you as a hemophiliac can live a, a fairly normal life and sure. aren't dead at 15 from, from playing basketball. You know, like I don't, I'm not a Luddite. I don't want to abandon all of the advances that we've made, but the false dichotomy, the false perception that's, that's portrayed is that if you accept modern medicine and modern technology and modern advancements, you must therefore accept everything else in modernity. It's not the case. There's no reason why to have modern medicine that helps hemophiliacs survive. You also have to poison a hundred thousand Indian children. Like the, these things are not necessary. They're not mutually inclusive, right? You can have one without the other. And I would love to be able to go take my son to the doctor and get him vaccines for viruses that he you know, is at risk for. I would love to be able to trust our establishment like that. It's the fact that they're so criminal that they so routinely cover up the the damages, cover up the deaths that I can't trust any of it anymore. I mean, you do as you do as much research as possible. So like, you know, my son's not vaccinated. I wish I wish I could trust the vaccines. I wish there were like four or five vaccines that he really needed that I could trust. Right. Didn't did you get vaccinated growing up? Yeah, I did. But it was completely different than it is. Today, right. right. Different it, schedule completely different it was nothing compared to what it is today and uh you know who knows you know it was around our age group that like autism started to become really prevalent and uh, you know i think that has a lot to do with and, and another thing you need to understand about the childhood vaccine schedule and one of the reasons why they were so desperate and why they did eventually put the vaccine on the childhood schedule which by the way they had to completely get a whole new board to do this i don't know if you know this but when they wanted to put the the vaccine on the childhood schedule. I think this was it. It was either when they wanted to put it on the schedule or when they wanted to just um, license it for children. The FDA voted no, and they just got rid of everybody. And everybody like had to resign from that board. They got a new board and, and then passed it. That happened like last year. Like it was that was super recent. But the reason why is because the U.S. government has total immunity for the vaccine makers if it's on the right. schedule. There's no so, liability if it's on the schedule. No liability if it's on the schedule. So they lobby super hard to get it on the schedule, and then they have complete immunity from any of the side effects. So it's so the reason they insisted that your kid take it was because they actually wanted to avoid any liability down the road. Hundred percent. Whoa! I didn't realize the that. Of what it should be. Yeah. I thought that they were guaranteed um, immunity before they were on the schedule as like a special dispensation. Like, I just what I thought. I don't have any source or anything like uh, that. The um, the COVID vaccine was yes, and then that was part of that was part of. Am I back? Sorry, I, I dropped for a little there. Yeah, you're here. Okay, so the COVID vaccine does have special immunity. Some can have special immunity, and that was actually revealed in well in a lot of different ways. But um, we had a guy on named uh, Eden Eden Bieber Eden Biber. His name's Eden Biber, not Bieber. So I, I always pronounced it Bieber and he would always correct me. Uh, I got fiber, had, fiber, beaver fever. He, yeah. Yeah. He found, um, he found like he searched all of these 
different countries like open documents and some of the like less developed countries had left their Pfizer agreements in places where they could be found in the public internet. And so he found agreements with like Argentina or like Romania or something that were the same agreements that Pfizer signed with other countries, but were secret. He found them in, in places like, uh, like I, I think it was Romania or Slovakia or something. And, uh, you know, that was part of the agreement as Pfizer said, we will not give you any vaccines unless you give us liability to the extent that in order to pay the liability, the countries put up military assets as collateral. So like in Brazil, if there's a giant lawsuit and people sue Pfizer for billions of dollars, the Brazil government is on the hook for that. And they're obligated by contract to sell like their like military bases and like canals that they control in order to pay for it. So uh, for the for the COVID vaccine, they absolutely had and have immunity prior to it going on the childhood vaccine. But the childhood vaccine immunity is across the board and it's an extra level. And it was voted on a long time ago uh, to give them that. And there is still a there's actually a government run taxpayer funded vaccine injury court that is run by the uh, vice president. And every year they have to put out a report showing how many injuries have been reported from the vaccines and what American taxpayers have paid out for it. Is it separate from VAERS? I think it relies on VAERS. It's a little different. It kind of gets mixed up because it's funny because like, you know, all the the anti-vax people COVID was like their game time, you know, because like for 10 years or 20 years, you're telling people about the problems with vaccines. And then all of a sudden, like the big one comes and you're like, I got this. So um, I would check out. Uh, oh, my God, I'm blanking on the name. And I I'm, I keep want to say Dale Wigington. He's the he's the, the chemtrail guy. Um, so I'm so ashamed. Someone in the chat knows who the. We we, we literally steal his. um his graphics for American Journal. Can't believe I'm blanking on this name. Highwire. Highwire. Uh, Highwire. So Max wants to know what woke us up. Dell Big Tree. Dell Big Tree is the guy's name. Dell Big Tree. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll tell you what woke me up. What woke me up? Yeah, Dell Big Tree. Thank you, Timothy. Um, what woke me up was nine eleven for sure. And the Iraq war, uh, cause I was in middle school when it happened. I was in sixth grade when nine 11 happened. And my best friend, who's one of my very good friends to this day named John, who I reference all the time. And he like calls in closer friends than us, or we didn't go to middle school together. I'm sorry. We didn't go to middle school together. John and I have a, have a connection. That's uh, pretty, un, pretty unparalleled, but, uh, but it's funny if you ever, Here's a little here's a little tip just for the uh, one American podcast viewers. If you ever hear me go to someone named John from Texas or John from Houston, and I pretend like I don't know who he is. That's, that's my boy John calling in, and uh, he's he's extremely smart, and he's Lebanese and he speaks Arabic, and so we would watch these little CNN reports in the morning in homeroom during uh, middle school, and he'd be sitting there going, "That's not what they're saying." That's not what they're saying at all. See the way, see the way Osama bin Laden is uh, wearing a gold, uh, gold, like chain. You're not allowed to wear gold as a, as a Muslim, like in like sixth and seventh grade, he was like just blowing up all the narratives for me because he, his family was Lebanese. Like his parents grew up and, you know, became adults in Lebanon before coming to America. John was born in America, but his parents weren't. So they had really, really tight connections over there. Still watched and read the news from over there. So 
you know, we would just be sitting there in homeroom and he'd just be going, that's not real. That's fake. That's not what's actually yeah. happening. And, uh, and so I learned to stop question, stop believing things like that back then. And then um, definitely seeing Alex Jones lose change. Uh, you know, 9-11 was an inside job and I'm from Texas and I grew up on the internet. So definitely Alex Jones in middle school. Well, I think for a lot of people, one big lie is enough for a wake up, right? Whether it's 9-11, whether it's JFK, whether it's any black flag operation, one big lie that becomes really obvious is enough for them to wake up to the extent that they don't trust government. But for me, my big wake up was just reading The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand when I was 17. That book mm. absolutely changed my life. It wasn't like a revelation that I was being uh, uh, lied to so much as it was it, like a reinforcement of real principle. So right. Ayn Rand's philosophy, I don't agree with 100% of it. I'm not an atheist, for example, like she was. Uh, but the ideas of capitalism and individualism and sourcing self-esteem from within and having all of your actions and beliefs be as close to logically harmonious as possible was really instilled in me. So then when I see this hip hypocrisy from these leaders, that is my signal of whether I support someone or not. And I would rather, for example, support uh, like a Bernie Sanders who I disagree with because at least he's consistent with himself than someone who I agree with who's like constantly full of shit. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so like that, that, that for me is like a bigger deal than like a JFK or lab leak theory or, um, you know, fake Russian hoax thing. Like, of course the CIA and the FBI lie and different power structures in our government are trying to overthrow each other constantly. But how do we like readjust this country or our culture really? So that as a value, we try to live a, a life that is coherent and consistent with, like a morality we used to have this whole melting pot diversity thing is, is bullshit, right? Because right. you can't have Brett, Brett came over. You can't, <laughs> you, you can't, you can't have a melting pot and diversity. You either assimilate or you don't. And I think our problem is we shifted away from melting pot to diversity. So now we have all these different cultures and values and ideals that are inconsistent with each other and inconsistent even internally with themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Because yeah, yeah. we don't assimilate anymore. And I would like to get us back to a place where we as a culture decide on one thing, one value, and we just live according to it. And if you look at the great civilizations throughout history, whether it's, you know, what the Catholic Church accomplished in Europe for hundreds of years during the medieval period, I mean, obviously it was a dark time and there were some problems, but there was consistency. Rome had a culture that was no, consistent. And, and the, more the, expanded, it was awesome. the more it expanded, the more Rome expanded and became inconsistent then the the more issues you know that they had and they fell apart greece had a had a culture the strongest nations and civilizations seem to have one culture so i, I think so, that this diversity thing is bullshit like it's important to include anyone who wants to be included but if you're going to be included in the game that we play as a society then you have to play by the same rules otherwise we're not playing the game we're just fucking around here's here's how i explain it we want harmony not discord right diversity for diversity's sake is cacophony it's a bunch of random instruments playing their own music at the same time and it's not beautiful it doesn't matter how beautiful each independent instrument is right if they're all just playing their own tune at their own speed it's just like oh god it's just like overwhelming it's disgusting it, it's not helpful for anybody 
But at the same time, you don't want 900 trumpets all doing the same noise at the same time. That's also not beautiful. That's also not music, right? So you want different instruments singing, doing different things, but they all need to be on the same tune. They all need to be on the same beat. They all need to, I don't understand music, so I don't know the words to use, but they all need to be, uh, pro, uh, uh, you know, tuned to the same frequency and the same beat and right. they need to take each other into account that's what makes beautiful music we need right. uh harmony not diversity harmony not discordance right uh, and that's what I, bothers I, I me so much about like this, this this accusation of cultural appropriation like i don't like rap music but i think it's really cool that a lot of white people are able to enjoy it and go and, and participate in it like that's cool i remember thinking it was so weird in junior high like i would go to the dances and i'm a classic rock guy so i'd be like oh this music sucks but all the white kids that went to the school with me loved it and like that's not cultural appropriation that is a melting pot that is like one culture kind of coming together and like if, if you're going to come to america don't come to America to make it more like where you came from. Come to America to be more like an American. Or if you're going to move to Texas from California, don't try to make Texas more like California. Try to be more like a Texan. You know, just move somewhere you want to live. And, yeah, and be, and, yeah. Look, and and the, yeah, this is, this is the problem with cowardice. This is the problem with people just being pussies, to be honest with you. Like, when I, you would never do to other countries what, those country citizens do to us. Mm -hmm. I love, I love Japan. Good Lord. I love Japan. I mean, yeah, I, me I spent two weeks. Of swords. Like, oh yeah. I got all sorts of swords. It, it was like, it was like the, the best two weeks of my entire life uh, going to Japan for these two weeks. I loved it. It was beautiful. They don't want to let me live there. You know, like I don't even know how to apply, but I'm sure if I tried to, you know, immig immigrate to Japan, they would say no. And I totally respect that. Of course, I respect that. What I want to ruin this beautiful thing that I love by injecting myself into it. I would never go there and try to change it. It is not mean or bad to demand that same respect from other people. I feel the same way about Mexico. I love Mexico. I love visiting Mexico. I think it's a beautiful place. Uh, they got a lot of problems, obviously. But, you know, I would never demand that they let me in and then demand that they change for me. I wouldn't I wouldn't right. disrespect them like that. And I'm not going to stand for someone disrespecting my country like that. Treat others as you would like to be treated and stand up for yourself when you don't get the same uh, courtesy in return. I mean, that's that's really how I well, feel. And, and it doesn't work. Like, look at the instances throughout the last hundred years of the United States uh, attempting to engage in nation building. Half the time it's failed and half the time it's succeeded. So what's the difference? So we annihilated Germany after World War II. They're back, right? Similar culture, similar values. We didn't try to restructure them. They already had something, you know, in place and we just took the Nazi part out, you know, as best we could. They're back. Japan after World War II, like you said, they're, they're back. They're extraordinary. But when we go into places like Iraq or Afghanistan and they were unstable to begin with and then we just destabilize them even more and then try to force a culture that's totally foreign and indifferent to them upon them it just doesn't work like you, you cannot force people into into something that's just totally foreign to them involuntarily assimilation requires consent and there's a reason that we basically force people to assimilate in the test to become a citizen here. I mean, you have to know all, all the amendments. You have to know the presidents. You, you have to understand the values of, of our nation before you can become a citizen legally in the, in the state. And that, that, the reason those rules are in place is because whoever set them in place understood the value of assimilation. Uh, you know, going back to your comment about rap, I, had a, I have a friend who um, 
like grew up just like always rapping. He grew up in Beaumont, Texas, and he just like he was just like a, a little white rapper. And that was just like his things, what he always did. And he got this girlfriend in college that told him like, you shouldn't rap like you're, you're culturally appropriating. Right. Mm. Um, but if you know anything about rap, it is a cultural um, mix. It's cultural melting pot. I mean, it goes back to jazz. Jazz is sort of a better example, right? Jazz is West African beats played on orchestral Western instruments. So without those orchestral Western instruments, without those West Africans being brought into America and having access to orchestral symphonic instruments, you would never have jazz. People go, well, jazz is a, is a black art. Okay, but it's only being able to play it on white Even the banjo. The banjo is an African instrument, but it's associated with bluegrass. It's associated yeah, yeah. with sort of redneck country music. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, so you can't you can't have you can't have exclusionary things like you can't say jazz is black and rap is black. Right. Rap, rap wouldn't exist without the, uh, you know, turntable beatbox culture of like Brooklyn or the Bronx in the 1980s, where they were tapping off of uh, light poles to get electricity to power their turntables, where they were scratching classic rock records and making beats out of them. That is an amalgamation. It was it was white people that that built the thing and, and run the electricity. It was black people that turned it into something else. It was uh, Jewish, uh, uh, you know, marketers that turned out, you know, figured out it could be profitable and made it popular. Like that's that's the beauty of 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 true diversity, of natural diversity. You know, I grew up in Houston where there is truly natural diversity. It's probably the most diverse city in the country, uh, but you never felt no it as, as a, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, the number, I mean, of, of all types, right? Like just huge black population, massive Hispanic population. Like I think it's like a third, a third, a third between those and the massive mix of Asian. I mean, ma like s s small Vietnam, like we got street signs in Chinese over there. Like the most diverse place you can possibly imagine. It wasn't until I went to the Northeast and lived in D.C. for a little while that I felt racism, that I felt the differences of races. Like I, I remember this one time very, very particularly going into a smoothie shop, walk in, black dude behind the counter. He like kind of looks at me like done. Give me, you know, and I'm just like, all right, looks like this dude's in a bad mood, but I'm just like jolly. And I'm, I'm a cheerful self. Hey, man, how you you're doing? like, you're like, I'll have the watermelon. And he looks at you like. I'm like, listen to me, boy. Now, um, I go, I'm like, I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? Uh, can I get a strawberry banana smoothie large? Like, Thanks, man. All right. Thank you very much. And he's just like, yeah, you know, just like takes the money. Just like give me the look or whatever. And I'm like, all right, dude's in a bad mood. Not my deal. You know, that's fine. Then a black dude walks in and he's like, how you doing, sir? How can I help you today? Welcome to Robux. I'm, I'm glad you came in. And I'm like, and for a second, I'm like, are they friends? Maybe he knows this guy. And then I'm like, no, he doesn't know him. It's because he's black. Okay, this is. This is what it's like to have racial tension. This is what it's like to have like, like some sort of strife between you. I'd never experienced that. I had never experienced that in my life. And it was even like refreshing going back to uh, Houston and walking into a, a restaurant on Westheimer. And it's like the black dude sitting with the Chinese girl. The, the, there's a group right. of Mexican and white guys hanging out over here. There's, and it's just like, nobody cares. Everybody's just trying to make money. Everybody's just trying to hustle. Everybody's just like, nice to each other i used to i i had a really good friend i took a gap year after high school and and f actually 
never went to college. So I, I took a gap year forever. But for a while, you know, I was living in Houston. One of my friends was going to U of H, which is right near Third Ward, which is the most ghetto part of Houston, which is a ghetto city in the first place. Um, and I would go and like hang out in my friend's house in Third Ward. You know, obviously, we just like have parties out front, hang out on the front porch, like, you know, kids we as you're I'm driving through in like my mom's minivan and like little black kids would run up and like try to sell you weed through the window like it was a, it was a very ghetto place but like I, I was it was never unsafe nobody ever right. like got mad like every once in a while I'd have somebody be like oh we don't see a lot of white boys walking through this neighborhood but like I would you know, there were like multiple times where I would show up at my friend's house he wouldn't be there and I'll just go for a walk around the neighborhood like say what's up to the people until like it was never like i'm in danger oh no i'm in the black neighborhood like that wasn't the spirit of houston so like i have an appreciate and i i legitimately have a much 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 healthier view of diversity of race because i was after elementary school i was never a majority in my school i never went to an all-white school every school i went to whites were the the biggest minority like there were more blacks and Mexicans in my high school in both my high schools and my you know junior high that I went to. And you, you understand like, okay, they have a different culture. It's, it's a lot of things are different for them in a lot of ways. And you have respect for that and you understand it. Um, you also aren't scared of it. You also don't treat black people like this thing over there that I hear right. about on the news. Right. I remember in, in high school hearing this conversation, I was, I was sitting with my friend, Brian, black guy and, and uh, this other kid who was black and, and Brian was telling this other kid, I sort of like came and sat down and they were already in this conversation where the dude's like, you can't join. My friend Brian's like, you can't join. You can't join up. And he's talking about joining up a gang. And the other black kid's like, dude, my brother is, my, my cousin is. He's like, they run my block, dude. Like, I'm not about to get my ass kicked every day when I go home from school. Like, I got to join. And like, you know, to me, you know, when you actually live in a diverse culture that's not at each other's throats, you know, that gave me a lot of insight into like, oh, shit, I don't have I, I didn't experience that. I don't have to worry about getting my ass kicked by the cribs right. every time I come home. So I can have respect for that. I can understand that. I can have empathy for that. I also can try to come up with ways that that boy and no other boy is ever in positions like that ever again that doesn't mean you accept it that doesn't mean you go that's just black culture and you have to you know it's good there it's like that that's not good that's like that that's that's horrific that's a horrible thing for a kid in high well, school and i don't even necessarily i don't even necessarily think it's a black culture thing i think it's just the nature of of poverty like anywhere you go in the world that there's a, an increase in poverty there's usually an increase in violent crime Right. Yeah. And, there, yeah. yeah and there's not, I guess there's not. different forms of it and there's different cultures among different socioeconomic people and communities or whatever in the United States. But like, I, I think a lot of times we, we always jump to systemic racism as the issue because we see these disparities among races in the United States, whether it's income disparities or education disparities or, or, or whatever. But I don't think it's actually because of race. I think it's because of socioeconomic status. Like if you grow well, up in a poor community, I think you're more likely to, to make decisions that uh, have different outcomes, worse outcomes, than if you grow up in, a, in, a, in an advantageous community. Of course, Hunter Biden is the exception. But, right, right. but I don't know. Like, I, just, I don't see it as like a black thing. I, I see it as like a poor versus um, getting like not poor thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's – I think it's both. And, and you know, it's not, it's not to say that 
you know, the problem is that people go, they go, if you point out that black people have higher rates of crime, they assume, they make the assumption or they project onto you that you think that that is a a biological imperative that is a part of their, their biological makeup. And you don't have that because you're superior and nobody, nobody's saying that it's, it's a very complicated issue, but you can look at, you know, I, I just always point to the fact that slaves are freed in the 1860s by the 1960s, blacks are exceeding whites in almost every metric that matters. Right. You're saying married longer income. Staying married longer, yeah. Families that are that are together, the number of kids they're having, educational attainment—that is an astonishing achievement in 100 years to go from less than zero. Because that's the other thing is they go, they go. You have to acknowledge the the historical, you know, effects of of slavery. Well, those had been not they those had been blown out of the water in 100 years. That's an amazing achievement for the black community. It was only at that. So you've got. In 100 years, they go from less than zero, less than nothing. Nothing would be they, they show up on a ship like the Italians did. These people weren't allowed to read. They weren't allowed to have families. They right. would sell your children out from under you. That's less than zero. That's, that's in the, it's being kept and held down in the dirt. So they go from that to parity in 100 years, in 100 years, in 10 decades, in two generations, more or less, right? Like two, two people right, growing to be middle-aged adults. That's astonishing. That's incredible. And it's only at that point that they look around, you know, the black community looks around and goes, hey, we've proved ourselves. We we don't deserve to be treated like second class citizens anymore. It's been 100 years. We've proved ourselves. It's time to drop all the Jim Crow crap. And government went, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll then uh, we'll help you along the way, too. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll give you some welfare to uh, help your journey along. And that's where it starts going downhill. So. You can you can understand and take account for the hysteric, uh, historical disparities amongst the races without acting like those disparities still exist in the world today. And, and the crime rate is because of slavery. Well, it, it wasn't it's in the not, 1960s. How is yeah. it how is it that way now? Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing to consider, too, is that a lot of the changes that we've seen in the last 50 years uh, among minority communities in terms of crime rates, all the metrics that we consider when we talk about racism or systemic racism, they're directly correlated with inflation. So we hop off the gold standard in 1971 and we have hyperinflation in the seventies and hyperinflation disproportionately impacts people who are middle-class or lower middle-class, right? So if you're a family of four and you're providing for your family as a man and all of a sudden everything is 10 or 20% more expensive, but your income doesn't change, then there, that change that that puts financial pressure on the family, that causes divorces, that causes people to want to turn to crime in order to make ends meet or do stuff under the table so they don't have to pay the taxes or whatever. And I honestly think that the number one source, the the the, the immovable mover or the primary mover of all of the racial tension in the United States today, is the inflation that's been occurring since the 1970s. And the irony is, the more programs that the government creates in order to try to combat this issue, the more it has to spend and the more it has to spend, the more it has to print and the more it prints, the worse inflation gets. So everything they do to try to solve the problem actually makes the problem worse and things would be better if they just stopped fucking around with it. Everything they do makes the problem worse. All of these equity things is is going to make it harder for uh, capable blacks to get good jobs. 
sending, you know, Thomas, um, Thomas Sowell has, you know, lays this out perfectly when he talks about uh, introduction to colleges where he goes, you take a black kid that is perfectly, he would be a perfect fit for a state school. He would, he would be an all A student. He would be summa cum laude or whatever. He would, he would thrive at a state school. You take him out of that. You put him in Harvard where he's not qualified for it only because he's black because you boost him up. Now right. he's, he's not as smart as his other classmates and he doesn't feel like he belongs. And so what do you do? You either let him fail out. Now he's got the, the tuition that he's got to pay for. You know, he's got the debt that he already took on, but he's got no degree. No, you know, he doesn't have a, a state diploma or a Harvard diploma and he feels like a failure and, you know, it's, it's not good for anybody. So, you know, all of these equity programs where they're, they're putting black kids in, uh, in programs they don't qualify for, you either are setting them up to fail or you have to change the requirements and you have to lower the standards. So you don't have the, Oh, Oh no, look, cause, cause then what happens? Then you, you put a bunch of black kids that don't actually qualify for the, for the school. And of course, you know, you have to always cover your ass. If you qualify for Harvard as a black kid, then you should go to Harvard, obviously. Right. Of course. Like if, of course. You don't need, if you don't need a leg up, we're not saying you, because you're black, you're not qualified. Right. That's, yeah. But you, you have to, you have to make these, these, I understand sort of things. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a degradation of everything or even like, like black businesses talk to a small business owner a lot of small, if they're honest with you, they'll say, I don't like doing business with black businesses because those black businesses have gotten gifts from the government and they, they probably wouldn't have succeeded without the benefits of the government. I want to work with a company that actually earned what they got. It's, it's just not good for anybody to do, you know, feed, give a man to fish and, and uh, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish. Like we need people who can fish for themselves. We need people who can build things up for themselves and are, are, being the best they can be without some supposedly beneficial handout from the government that actually poisons the well and, and makes everything, you know, that much more difficult to everybody. I, I do want to say, have you ever seen the website? Uh, what the fuck happened in 1971? Yes. Okay, good. You want me to pull it up? Sure. I, I just wanted you to make sure. Have you ever seen the website? Joe Biden's emails. Joe Biden's emails? Yeah, hold on. Hold on. Oh, shit. Hunter Biden, actually. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to pull it up. The audience wait, needs someone, to see this. Wait, I think someone's talking shit to me. Who's Jacqueline? Oh, is that oh, Jacqueline? That's, that's, yeah, it's the Jacqueline. She says, going back to Houston, I went to Aldine Westfield High School right around Greens Point, Guns Point. I'm sure, yes, I yes, I absolutely know Greens Point. I didn't hang out much in uh, in Greens Point. I'm an I'm a inner city. I'm an uh, inner loop boy. I actually grew up in the inner loop, not the... Not the uh, Parkway, not Beltway Eight, in a loop, baby. I'm I'm six ten. My wife's not. She was outside the loop. She was a Houstonian. I was I was in a loop, baby. I gotta find this. I had this, I had this website pulled up earlier today, and I can't find it. Oh, here we go. Here we go. All right, I only got about ten minutes left on here. Yeah, I know. I know. I know it. I'm just Anybody having so wanna... much fun. Who else is going to ask us questions? Is Biden a clone? You know, what a poor decision. I don't think so. Have you? Do you see the video of uh, the mask technology in the '60s? Have you seen that? Uh uh It's a video made. I think it was the '60s, maybe it's the '80s, but um, it's like a CIA woman. She was like, "Yeah, I did masks for the CIA," and they actually have video of these people putting on these masks. They look exactly like 
a real person, exactly like, you know, George Bush or whoever. And uh, they actually have these things where they go into like the Oval Office and the woman is talking to like President Reagan. I guess it must have been the 80s, but uh, the 70s. It was a long, long time ago. They had this mask technology where you could sit there and have a face to face conversation two feet away from the person and never realize it's a mask until they took it off. Like that technology is absolutely real. And there's no reason why you there's a girl like that, that exists. You'd agree. So, like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So before you, before we end this, I wanted to make sure to share with the, the viewers and you Harrison, there's this website, Biden laptop emails.com. And it's like WikiLeaks of Biden's 128,000 emails. Oh, so sure. you can type in any keyword and find all the emails. So like I did Metabiota, for example, right. I've talked about it on your show. Mm-hmm. I don't want to view all hundred. I don't want to do the Metabiota only. Yeah, there we go. Oh, no, no, all the Max, emails. Max the has a question for you, Chase. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> I joined, I'll tell you exactly why I'm a Freemason. I decided to become a Freemason because I was impressed with the um, founding fathers, particularly Benjamin Franklin. And I read his autobiography when I was in college. And out of a sense of... <gasps> patriotism I'm okay. uh i thought i would have a better understanding and closeness with um just americanism if i had that experience uh I, and it really did help me understand some of the principles and philosophies behind the declaration of independence our constitution things of that nature because all that stuff is in uh freemasonry so that's why i decided to become a freemason and i'm glad that i did it was a really good experience this is this is the propaganda chase has been presenting i was about. asked this I was asked the, the question. I don't just this is the, push it. The satanic indoctrination he's trying to he's trying to put me under. No, it's they're very fascinating. It's it's an interesting thing. I mean, that's that's one of the things is like you can rail against the Freemasons. I'm sort of torn because you can rail against the Freemasons and you can point to secret societies doing you know kind of messed up stuff. But then like yeah, George Washington, like all the founding fathers were Freemasons. So like how do you reconcile that? Uh, Texas Freemasonry was a huge part of the founding of Texas. Like that, yeah, that's just, go, whole, just look like, at the plaque outside of the Alamo. All those guys were Masons. Sure. No, it, not only were they Masons, like Santa Ana's crackdowns that led to a wide, wider Mexican revolt of which the Texas Revolution was just a part. It was explicitly like he passed ordinances to destroy the Masons because the Masons were becoming too influential and Catholics basically hate Masons. So like at the same time, you know, my grandparents, my mother's parents who were uh, Catholic despised the Freemasons. Like couldn't stand the free, thought they were just like complete. Well, and Freemasonry was, was like, really in large born out of the Reformation. It, it was in part an organization that was not anti-Christian by any means, but very anti-Catholic because at the time the Catholic church was very tyrannical. And so it was like a freedom of thought, freedom of speech. Like you could go to the lodge and you could actually share ideas about philosophy that mm-hmm. the church might say was heresy, right? If you, if, you, if you discussed that you didn't think the Pope was infallible, that was heresy. But you could do that in a lodge. And the same with the revolution. I think part of the reason that America is so influenced by Freemasonry is because the lodge was one of the only places where you could go and talk shit about King George without getting tarred and feathered. Because your brothers won't do that to you, you know? Yeah, and look... Um... You know, when the founding fathers created America, like what they were doing was really unprecedented. And they sort of saw, I believe they sort of saw Freemasonry as a a sort of a control mechanism for like just guaranteeing things didn't just fly off the rails right away. Right. They sort of had this this society where they went, 
okay, we, we know who is, they, they just knew people. I mean, it was a club. It was different than it, than it is now. Certainly it was very different, you know, back then to me, the, the, one of the most fascinating things is uh, how you all worship Satan. I think that's, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, I I think one of the, one of the most, one of the most fascinating things is the fact that what it came out of was state guaranteed monopolies in England in the medieval times. So you, so the queen or the, the king, whoever it happened to be would grant monopolies for entire industries. So the Masons were, those who had been granted a monopoly on the masonry business by the queen of England. And you would have the masons and the coopers and the uh, beer makers and the the Mm -hmm, shoemakers. mm -hmm. And so you you didn't just used to have the masons, you had all of these different ones, the masons. And so masonry uh, grew out of that, but it started with in the medieval times, state sanctioned monopolies on industry. Yeah. And and there's, there's even, there's even more to it than that. Because most guilds, you're, you're right on the money, but most guilds back in those days were hyper-local. So if you were a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith and wherever you were a blacksmith, like wherever you grew up whole, your whole life. But with masonry, there's not a major construction project going on in your hometown your whole life. Mm. So masonry was one of the few professions where you actually had to travel. That's why there's an expression like, are you a traveling man? You had to travel in order to do work. And that's why... There was secrecy and passwords and handshakes put into place because the different degrees of, fa- of masonry were like the different degrees of our education where you like have an associate's or you have a bachelor's or a master's, right? And so when you would go to a job site in a new location and there were other masons there and you needed to work, and if you claimed that you were a second degree or a fellow craft mason because you wanted those wages, you had to be able to prove it with the right word or right handshake. That was like your proof that if you knew that secret, it meant that you actually had that initiation and that training at that level of masonry. So I'm going to give this person a fellow craft's work because they understand how to do this tougher job than the entered apprentice who basically can only move like bricks around. And the master Mm. mason, of course, can do the more sophisticated work. And that was sort of where the secrets came from. And then over time, the the masons somehow sort of became wealthy and it became more like a fraternity and a philosophy club and a brotherhood than an actual working guild and Mm -hmm. so they retained all the handshakes and passwords as tradition but everything rather than taking on a literal meaning of how do we build this fucking building it took on like a philosophy uh, philosophical um uh, of how do we enslave humanity right so like for example there's like a metaphor in freemasonry of the rough ashlar so that's like a big block that's basically taken straight from the quarry and it's all f- like rough and, nat- and natural. I know what and an ashlar right, is. Right. And, and you know, the, the metaphor in masonry is that you have to look at yourself like a rough ashlar and you have to hammer away your imperfections so that you become a perfect ashlar. So you can be like a better person. Right. And so originally they would actually teach you how to make a perfect cube out of a big brick of limestone or whatever. And later on it became like this symbol of how to build your character, right? See, and I, these I, are the I, kind of things that masonry teaches. It's not like worshiping Satan or anything. It's really just sort of like a, a philosophy based off of symbolism. Yeah, I feel like we could go go on about this. For, I, I would be more interested sure. in masonry if they actually taught me how to make a badass cube of limestone. That sounds cool. That sounds <laughs> that sounds cool to me. I'm I'm already a well well defined ashlar. Thank you very much. But I would like to find out how to. That- perfectly square jaw hammer and chisel yeah no well it's, it's uh, been an honor and a pleasure to have you dude i know that you got to get going you like to go to bed early because you have to be on the show in the morning 
Yeah, I do. I do. I'm an old man these days. But dude, thank you for having me on. Uh, we totally did not do what we set out to do, which was a deep I dive know. on the uh, COVID. But Maxie had a family issue, by the way. He texted me, said he was sorry. Oh, shoot. Oh, well, I hope everything's all right for him. Um, so this, been really, this has been really fun, dude. Let's let's do it again soon. And, uh, you know, God willing, with, with his blessing, then uh, I will soon be having a baby and on paternity leave and you'll be taking over. And uh, I look forward to it. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Yeah. Hopefully thanks you thanks to everybody on. with the super chats and the questions and stuff too. It was really fun having you guys. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for showing up everybody. Jacqueline, Alex Jones, uh, the janitor, Sam Lopez, yeah, Timothy Lasley, some guy named Brett Little that I've never heard of. Uh, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in everybody and uh, find me tomorrow morning. Give me a call. One eight seven 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 eight nine two five three nine eight to eleven a.m. Central Standard Time. Band dot video. MadMaxWorld dot TV. Harrison Hill Smith on Twitter. Pornhub.com. <laughs> I'm not. I thought. I, I know we were going.